Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Jay Hall, for his support and all my Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There will be more about my Patreon page later on in the episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who's at the start of his career, but has achieved so much already. He's been the assistant conductor of the San Francisco Symphony and is currently the conducting fellow of the New World Symphony in Miami. He was also the founder of an extremely innovative group called the Elevate Ensemble. It's a real pleasure to welcome Chad Goodman. Chad, lovely to see you today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm currently in Miami Beach, uh, where I work with the New World Symphony, and it is entirely too beautiful for this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more beautiful than where I am, though I, I love my city. So, you know, I'm not complaining, but yeah, Miami Beach sounds like a very nice place to be at Christmas time. Um, I always go back and ask you about your earliest musical experiences. I can find no recollection or, uh, or notice anywhere online about what instruments you played other than I found a picture of you holding a trumpet uh, on, uh, on Google. So I wonder whether the trumpet was your main instrument or whether you were just t- t- taking part in some weird photo um, setup. Uh, and, where, and when music came into your world, are you a musical family? How did it start? <laughs> yes, trumpet. Trumpet is, is my main instrument. I started playing trumpet when I was eight years old and in public school at the age of nine, everyone gets to pick an instrument. And so I started a little bit uh, ahead of time in, in settling on trumpet because my father had played trumpet when, when he was a kid and he actually did it very seriously up through his college years. Um, And he never went into it professionally, but it was honestly the biggest passion in his life. And my grandfather as well played mm. trumpet. Um, both my father and my grandfather ended up founding small businesses and running businesses. But my grandfather ran a big band during the big band era here in the States. And, and then my father played in, you know, classical music. He was playing in symphonies. He was playing um, in rock bands. Mm. You know, he sort of grew up in that golden age when playing trumpet was very hip to everyone. I, I ended up growing up a little bit later where uh. it was just a nerdy band thing again, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so he grew up in the Herb Alpert sort of stage, did he? Absolutely did. And 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 so, yeah, so I picked up the trumpet at age eight, and, and my father actually picked up the trumpet after decades of not touching it and um, started playing again. And he was my first teacher for my first year. And uh, I, I really took a, a liking to it, and, and, and I maybe had some, some more natural abilities on the instrument. And so my, my father agreed to get me private lessons. So I actually started studying a jazz trumpet. I didn't even start in the classical world. I was, I was studying with a, a lead trumpet player um, who played all the musicals coming through Washington, D.C. in the Baltimore area where I grew up. And he was the lead player in the Navy Commodores jazz band. So my, my whole musical upbringing was, was actually in jazz and it didn't shift into classical until a little bit later. Oh, wow. I was going to ask, you know, who was going to win the day, the the grandfather in his big band world or or your father in his sort of orchestral world. But it sounds like the grandfather sort of won for a while. Um, any, I'm not sure I've spoken to anybody who really started 
actually started straight away in the jazz world before anything else. Is there anything from that world that you still use today um, on a regular basis? Yeah, and oddly enough, or, or perhaps it's not odd, I've, I've found that in um, interviews and, and talking with other conductors and, and arts administrators that it, it becomes something that, that stands out quite a bit um, compared to a lot of other conductors. And, and I think it trained me to play music and, and internalize music by feel very quickly because what's written on the page isn't necessarily how it's played and that's the beauty and curse of jazz and why it can be a challenge to work with an orchestra on something like let's swing this what yeah. does that even mean because what's written on the page is not how you play it and so i grew up learning all of these different styles of of playing and ways of reinterpreting what is what is printed and and how can i change that into something else um i also Grew up doing a bit of improvisation, which has always helped me. I found more and more, and 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 I think it's uh, put me at ease in certain situations and and sight reading and and all these other things that I think um, can cause a lot of tension for musicians. I think I there was so much of my upbringing that was just go with the flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Um, that it's aided me in sort of loosening things up uh, in the classical world. Mm. So when did the classical world, you said you switched at a later date or or became interested in it at a later date, when did it first come in? And I'm assuming that would be, it shows how little I know about jazz, but that would be when you first really met a conductor, i.e. what the world perceives to be a conductor, somebody dressed in a, in a tux holding a baton. Yes, so I think my story is not unique in that it was playing in a youth orchestra. My introduction to, to playing in a youth symphony was the Maryland Youth Symphony Orchestra, which I auditioned for at age 13 and got accepted into. And the music director was, at that time, especially as a kid, everyone's old to you, but he <laughs> felt particularly old. You know, he was this, this uh, Italian gentleman named Angelo Gatto. He had been a violinist with the Pittsburgh Symphony in like the 40s and 50s. Oh. Um, and he was the, the director for, for decades of the Maryland Youth Symphony. And I had never encountered anyone like him. I had grown up, growing up in America, it's, it's a band tradition, right? So I grew yeah. up playing in wind ensembles and, and symphonic bands. And so this was my first time ever playing with strings. I never had the opportunity until this youth orchestra to sit in the same room with string players. And working with this man was just unbelievable. He was so inspiring. I had never met someone so passionate uh, about music. And I mean, you know, an old Italian man to, you know, be passionate about music. And of course the repertoire was all the greats. It was the, you know, it was Mozart, it was Verdi, it was Beethoven, Berlioz, just, just all the core repertoire. And he was inspiring and at the same time, unintentionally hilarious because he was so serious, right? He's working with all these young musicians, but he's working with us like we're a professional orchestra. And if, you know, someone makes a mistake, he would just start saying prayers for that person in Italian, just muttering <laughs> it. <laughs> I like that. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this became my, my, my gateway into, into classical music. And it was the first time I ever got goosebumps making music. My, my first year there, we were playing Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with the communal aspect of making music with all these other young musicians who were sacrificing their Saturday morning instead of playing with friends, playing football, doing whatever that we were meeting in this, you know, college orchestra rehearsal room and, and making music. And, and so that was the turning point. And I decided I'm going to be an orchestral 
trumpet player. That was my goal. At 13, if you asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, that was it. Ditto for me at the age of 14. Uh, you did yeah. make me think of a question, um, yeah. uh, which I'm not sure I've asked before, about somebody who we first encounter youth orchestra conductors or amateur orchestra conductors. And frankly, there are some professional conductors you could level this at who are ex-string players. Did he maybe over-obsess on the strings uh, and the string sound? And, you know, the woodwind and brass would sit there for 25 minutes and do literally nothing. I remember the first time I worked with my amateur orchestra in Birmingham, they were so pleased when I actually involved them every, you know, five or ten minutes or so <laughs> compared to others they'd had who just obsessed. And they'd, they'd sit there and think, I haven't played for 25 minutes and this is my hobby. You know, um, was he a good overall person? You know, he dealt with everybody and, and didn't, fuss too much over the string playing he definitely fussed over the string playing yeah but yeah. But, but he was he, he was very good about including all of us and and the way our rehearsals uh were scheduled was the first hour of rehearsal was always a sectional it was brass sectional a woodwind sectional and he led the string sectional always yeah. so yeah. he got his nitpicking in with just strings alone hmm. uh, but there was you know it was definitely a uh an experience as a young musician coming into the orchestral world which I was very unfamiliar with to like show up and I think the first program I was playing on we did Schubert Unfinished and it was something like you know as a trumpet player playing second trumpet on that I think there was one point where I had to count like 155 bars of rest and it's like you know it's you you, you learn quickly what the uh, roles are you know and, and how trumpet coming from the jazz world and band world where it's trumpets melody trumpets everything that's the lead voice to like yeah. No, sometimes you tacit entire movements or pieces, you know, so for an entire program, I don't even play the concerto. And as a young kid, that was really strange to me. Yes, yes. Um, I, I'm going to ask a question, which, you know, uh, now with two people's different words, Hawken Hardenberger, uh, the trumpet player, called it stick poison. Uh, and my old mate, Pete Hill, the timpanist of the CBSO and the Bournemouth mm -hmm. Symphony for many, many, many years, called it stickitis. When did you take your first draft of Stick Poison and why? What Was there something that made you think, do you know what, I'd, I'd really quite like to stand in front of everybody and wave my arms around. Yeah, you know, for me, I don't have the traditional story. I don't have the Dudamel, like, conducting my stuffed animals in my room as a child kind of tale. <laughs> um, for me, I was really set on being... I wanted to be principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. That was yeah. my my big goal, my future goal. And so through my bachelor's degree, which I got at the Eastman School of Music in New York, um, I was still set on being a trumpet player. And I even for, for graduate studies, moved to San Francisco to study trumpet. Yeah. But during my first, actually during the first week that I was in, in grad school, I was walking down the hall and I locked eyes with this uh, one of the professors. And it was one of those where like, we both knew that we knew each other, but we had no idea from where. And yeah. so we stopped and we started chatting and it turned out he had been a guest conductor with the Eastman Wind Ensemble when I was playing with that group in, in, in undergrad. And he had just started at San Francisco State directing the Wind Ensemble there. And so I was playing in his groups and within the first two weeks or so, we had really hit it off. I would just go chat with him in his office and um, he pulled me aside one day and he was just like, I, I really enjoy your musicality on the on the trumpet and I love talking music with you I just have a feeling you would you could make a fine conductor if you'd be interested I'd be happy to provide you with free lessons wow and so I had had no desire still at this point age 22 in grad school trumpet was my my future but I thought I respect this this musician he sees something in me 
And I know that studying, I was already at that point, you know, I'd study some scores. I'd look at them to see how the trumpet part fit in. So I thought, well, getting better at this can only help my trumpet playing. So I'll say yes. (laughs) So I started weekly private lessons in conducting with this man. His name was Martin Zegelke. He's a German, German conductor. And, um, I just, I fell in love with it. And by the second semester, I became the assistant conductor. And that was my first time getting to stand in front of a full ensemble. And I was, I was hooked. I was hooked. You've been called an assistant conductor um, with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. You're conducting fellow at the New World Symphony Orchestra in Miami now, but you've also been a cover conductor. Now, there's three things there. You think, well, that's just semantics, Mike. You know, they're just words, but they are subtly different jobs, aren't they? So could you take us through what being an assistant is versus being a cover conductor is versus being a conducting fellow? It's probably a very long answer, and I'm happy to hear the answer, but I'm, I'm sorry to make it such a long question. But they are so subtly different, don't you think? Yes, yeah, they are, and I think it depends. You know, it's a case by case situation. Yes, so, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I will say that as an assistant conductor with the San Francisco Symphony, I was brought in, I think maybe five seasons ago, yeah. to assist guest conductors exclusively. Right. They have a they have a they had at the time a staff conductor position, which most orchestras would probably refer to as the assistant conductor. But there, the titled role was resident conductor, right. and the resident <laughs> conductor. I know to add another another word. <laughs> a fourth the- strand, yeah. <laughs> Their resident conductor was responsible for running the youth orchestra, kids' concerts, education programming, and then being the cover slash assisting yeah. the music director and the conductor laureate, who was um, Herbert Blomstedt. Yeah. And so all of the guest conducting weeks, which of course is the majority of the season, mm. they would have other conductors like myself. Um, be the assistant. So I was the cover conductor as the assistant conductor in San Francisco. I am a cover conductor. I'm also assisting in any and every way, whether that's giving balance, whether that's helping with lighting cues, if there was going to be some sort of extra things. I I, I know I've, that you've, you're very familiar with, you know, maybe you're calling video cues or something like that. But basically it's, you offer your services in relation to the conductor in any way possible so also off stage if that you happen to be needed off stage for some exactly my, my very first week my very first day i ended up getting to conduct on off stage uh the off stage banda it was in alpine symphony and so daniel harding was conducting and the way that he was doing it's the typical backstage they have the little tiny little tv monitor and yeah. you know ancient tv monitor and and the the uh, brass ensemble off stage would use that well daniel when he was doing this um, was taking a little bit more time. There was more rubato in this offstage section and the 14 brass players crammed in the, in the back alleyway, you know, um, couldn't tell what was going on, couldn't hear what was going on. And so I was sort of like in the second half of, of the first rehearsal, uh, the head of the artistic department of, of the symphony came out and said, Chad, how are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm doing well. This is great. You know, I'm so excited to be here. And he was like, good, good, good. Um, how would you feel about conducting the, the offstage? And I said, Oh, sure. Like tomorrow. And he went, Oh no, like right now. And they were like, <laughs> they, they were like two rehearsal numbers away from the offstage. Like Daniel's yeah. rehearsing 
he has no idea this is happening, but the, the brass players at break had approached administration and said, we, we don't know what's going on. We need someone back here. Right. So I just sort of got thrown into it. And, and so day one, I actually got to stand in front of, you know, an extraordinary group of brass players, with the San Francisco symphony. And though it's a small part, you, you also, it's one of those things that you can't necessarily win over people by being a great offstage conductor, but you can sure as hell ruin things for yourself if it doesn't go well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, there are two things to bring up about that is that, you know, you mentioned the fact that you have a tiny little monitor, which is in black and white, grainy, grainy view. Um, and, you know, the listener might might be thinking, well, why doesn't, you know, surely these days we can have a nice big digital flat screen. And the reason why is that the technology doesn't seem to yet exist for the picture to be instantaneous on a digital flat screen picture of what, it, it, there's a lag. It's about half a second to a second lag. And I know I've done opera at the Conservatory in Birmingham where you know, the, uh, the orchestra is at the back of the stage and so the singers are singing everything off the monitor. And they brought in all of these wonderful flat screen things and there was a delay and we had to just go and get some old black and white. It's a huge Cathay ray tube things in grey boxes that look ugly and disgusting, but it's the only way because it's instant. It's instantaneous. And that's why you sit in the dark in various corners of various concert halls as an offstage conductor looking at a grainy black and white TV screen. The other story I must tell you is that when I did the Alpine Symphony with the CBSA Youth Orchestra, we did it in Symphony Hall, Birmingham. And we had very early discussions about who to use for the 12 offstage horns, the two offstage trumpets and the two offstage trombones. I think that's the right numbers. And uh, I decided it, it might be nice to see if we could get people from all of the local youth, um, youth and amateur orchestras to come and play. So I put a Facebook post up and said, if you fancy playing in the offstage group for the Alpine Symphony next, whenever it was, uh, send, a, send me a message on Facebook. We ended up that night, one of the horn players went ill, so we ended up with 23 offstage horns, um, four offstage trumpets and three offstage trombones. Uh, and I've got a video somewhere that somebody videoed it from his music stand as one of the 23 horn players, and it's the most disgusting yet exciting sound I think you'll ever hear. <laughs> <laughs> Unforgettable. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the, I put them up on the very highest level, out the back of the, the back doors of Symphony Hall, um, of the audience. And so their sound was going into the mall, the public mall. It was ringing around and it actually sounded inside the hall like they were in the next valley, which is what I would think it should sound like, rather than in the valley you're in, climbing up the mountain. It sounded like they were either the other side of the mountain or in the next valley. But yeah, I mean, up close, that sound is truly awful. Um, and we had uh, Alpes Chohan, who's been on the on the podcast, he was conducting. Um, but yeah, offstage is such a tricky thing, isn't it? And I've done it, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an, a very difficult role and something that, once again, people don't think necessarily much of. No. But, but like I said, I, I, I think it is, as I alluded to, something I came across in trumpet auditions when I was still doing, you know, pursuing that professionally while I was building my conducting career. I was still playing and taking auditions. Um, and I remember for me, it was Beethoven's Leonore Overture Number no. 3, the, the, the offstage trumpet call, speaking of offstage. Yeah. It's the B-flat major arpeggio. And I remember someone explained it to me as this is an excerpt that you, you can't win an audition with this but you can lose an audition with this. And that's how I feel about any and all offstage conducting mm. is if it's done well, people will not know that there's a conductor involved at all. Absolutely true. 
Um, I'm assuming, you know, uh, I know you, you, you added the fourth strand, the resident conductor, but I'm assuming really cover conductor, assistant conductor in the role that you were in, you're not actually going to get much conducting other than offstage. Whereas conducting fellow, with, which is where you are now, um, you started fairly recently, I think, at the New World Symphony in Miami, you are getting conducting and you're getting major, major stuff. So do you still uh, have any roles in assisting as a conducting fellow? Do you, go, do you now go and assist the, the music director? Yeah, I, I do as I do that as well. So so my responsibilities as conducting fellow at New World are uh, much more hands on. I'm in addition to running all of the education and family concerts, outreach programming and, and building all of that and conducting all of that. I also have the opportunity here to share subscription concerts with our music director, Michael Tilson Thomas, as well as many of the guest conductors. Mm. So I'm getting to actually share share the podium on, you know, with all of these extraordinary musicians that are coming through. And um, on top of that, I still, I, I'm actually the cover for the whole season. So it's, it's wow. actually ev- everything. It's, it's very, uh, very busy. We'll say the, the, this season in particular is, is a bit of a doozy. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, I think I'll be conducting on 16 different programs this season here at new wow. world, which is incredible. I mean, well, I, it would be difficult to find an assistant role where there's that much, consistent podium time i mean i think i'll be conducting every week of january and february so you know it might be one piece it might be the overture on a subscription or you know or it might be an education program or a run out concert you know whatever it is but it's um i get my hands dirty in this position which is exactly what i need you know because you spend all of that time i think for a lot of people particularly in the states assistant conducting roles cover conducting it's such a common stepping stone uh and it's where I learned everything, honestly. Yeah. Watching rehearsals is the greatest thing. I, I will never uh, be upset with that. You know, as much as I want to, of course, be the one on the podium, the more time I have to watch conductors I admire or conductors that aren't successful, um, yeah. the more time I have to, to observe, the better I'm going to be, you know, through the future. So. so, yeah, I mean, that's the perfect mixture. The fact that you're conducting a piece in every concert and you're sticking around to watch the guests and MTT, the music director, you know, you're still watching rehearsals, which, you know, even at the age of 51, and I've been conducting professionally now, you know, getting on for 20 years, um, I still quite enjoy going and sitting and watching somebody else rehearse. And like you said, you're learning from some of the greats and you're learning from some of the not-so-greats, and there are still things to learn, but to actually have that much podium time is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It says that you started in San Francisco in 2018 as the assistant. When did Elevate Ensemble happen? Was that before, during, after? When did it start? And then we'll get to talk about what Elevate Ensemble is or was. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, as I mentioned, when I was in grad school is where I was introduced to conducting. And through this period and the years following uh, my graduate studies, I was playing trumpet professionally in the San Francisco Bay Area. There were a tremendous number of uh, orchestras. So I was freelancing consistently with five or six orchestras. I had a private trumpet studio of up at most, I think, 22 students I was teaching a week. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, I, I knew that I wanted to do more conducting. This is the path I wanted to go down. 
I didn't want any more academia though. Like I, <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to be in school. I didn't want to be, you know, have more student loans to pay off in the future, which is an abysmal thing here, yeah. <laughs> um, to deal with. And so I thought I'm already freelancing professionally as a trumpet player. Um, I would say I took this, the, the, the field of dreams mentality. I don't know if you remember that film, yeah. baseball film. Yeah. Where there was the, the famous quote was, if you build it, they will come about building yeah. a baseball stadium. I thought, well, if I put together a group, I can hire all my friends. You know, if I can pay them, of course, why would they turn that down? And they know me, we have good rapport already. So why not? And so I decided I'll found my own professional ensemble. And from the start, I knew I'm going to have to be able to raise money for this, which, you know, things I had never done. I went to music school and, and graduate school for trumpet performance, you know, and picked up conducting along the way. Um, but I knew I could only do this if I could pay everyone, you know, yeah. I, this can't be a pro bono kind of gig thing, or that's a one-off if it is. So I thought I need to, I can't form an orchestra, so I'll form an ensemble. So I thought flexible instrumentation pieces like, you know, L'Histoire or the Strinsky Octet, Schoenberg Chamber Symphony, you know, flex, I could change the number of players based on even how much money I have, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so I put together a group that, we did our first show. I rented out a yoga studio in sort of the suburbs of San Francisco and used this as a venue. And my big piece was Dvorak's Serenade for Winds. Mm -hmm. And I was friends with some local composers. I paid out of pocket for everything for the first program. This was just, I need to get things off the ground. And so I commissioned a very short fanfare piece to open. And it was a mixed bag. There was a, a short work, a chamber symphony by Mio. There was a mixed septet by Martinu called Le Ronde, which is beautiful. Um, and then I had a, a few of these new, two new music works and Dvorak Wind Serenade. And putting this together was just the greatest lesson I, I ever had in music business because I had to, I marketed everything. I programmed everything. I commissioned it. I realized how much of a pain it is to try and get, in this case, I think I used a total of 13 freelance musicians to agree and commit to a rehearsal schedule and performance schedule, let alone to just even respond to an email. Like you learn about dealing with people very quickly, um, renting a venue. Um, I had to rent chairs. It's a yoga studio. It's not a, it's not a concert venue. I had to rent chairs. So I had to rent a van to pick up chairs from another part of the city, drive that out, set up all of the chairs myself, tear it all down after the concert. So it was a, a one person show, so to speak, but I had nearly a hundred people show up for this show in a yoga studio that was primarily contemporary music um, on the outskirts of the city. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought this went very well, like I'm doing something right. And so I, I just need to figure it out. And so from there, I, I put together an advisory board of people who were much more knowledgeable than I was and people that were excited about my vision. And it turned into this very successful organization, which I credit for everything. I gained all of my conducting experience through this group because it was mine. That was the beauty. I conducted everything. I picked yeah. every piece. I wrote the program notes. I talked to the audience. So I learned all the skills that you need as, as a conductor. Uh, I just got to do with my, my own group and the, the victories could feel like they were mine and the failures were mine also. You know? <laughs> um, before we go on to what it means to run something like that and what Potentially, this means for the future for young conductors like yourself and those who want to be conductors. I'm going to ask you a question which has popped into my head and because of something you said right back at the beginning as a, as a passing comment. Do you think or did you actually 
speak to your father and your grandfather, who were both, as you said, set up small businesses around them, them successfully themselves. Did you gain anything from them? Uh, and if so, what? Um, or do you think, you know, there's something in the bones of uh, being brought up by, you know, a father or grandfather who were entrepreneurs? Uh, did you gain anything from them? What a great question. Um, I, no one's asked me this. Yeah, so absolutely. From Particularly from, from my father, I, um, I found our relationship got even closer yeah. because of this, because he was running a small, it was a paper and janitorial supplies company. So nothing, the furthest thing from music, but he was a small business owner. Yeah. And all of a sudden, instead of chatting, you know, I lived on the other side of the country, you know, all those years, I lived in San Francisco, eight years, um, you know, instead of chatting once a week, we'd be talking several times a week. And it might be, dad, how do I boost the morale of my musicians? Or how do I get these people to call me back? Or oh. how do I negotiate? <laughs> you know, how do I make an ask for something? And so I think it actually made my relationship with my dad stronger and, uh, yeah, it just added so much value to what I was doing and 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 to my connection with my family. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've never been asked that. Yeah. Well, I, it just popped into my head thinking, well, you know, obviously the trumpet playing side of your of your family rubbed off, and you wonder whether the entrepreneur side did. You know, I, I read about Elevate, and it's, you know, you had collaborations with photographers, videographers poets, culinary artists, which I'm very intrigued by. Uh, somebody who loves his food. It sounds like, you know, we have a mutual friend, David Taylor, who calls himself an arts entrepreneur. I would say that there is now a substrata to this, which is the conductor entrepreneur, those who set up their own ensembles with a different skew on things. It's not just an orchestra that lives in a hall and plays, you know, classical music in inverted commas. You know, you're doing mixtures of programmes with collaborating with different people. Do you think that's something that, you know, more conductors should do and going forward you know how important for a conductor in the future do you think social media is and you know i i'm on most of them because you have to be sort of uh, and sometimes you can feel a slave to it um but you know how, how do you think that young conductors you know conductors 10 years younger than you just starting out right now need to think in the future or do, or do you think they can just do it the old-fashioned way still i don't think they can I think very few will be able to do it yeah. the old fashioned way. Um, I think that starting a group, like I said, it's, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. It's the reason I'm actually doing this as a career now, but it gave me so much life experience. It gave me so much conducting experience. Um, all these, these interpersonal, you know, people skills. I, I, it's something I've encouraged. I have a few conducting students and, and, and I've had some that have, that have been quite successful in doing this. And it doesn't mean starting a non, a not-for-profit organization yeah. um, and going all in, but I had a student who was an undergrad. Uh, it was a vocalist and he knew he wanted to get into conducting, but he, he wasn't able to take the conducting courses or, you know, do everything at the university. And so I said, get to know everyone, all, all the other students. You have the luxury of being in academia, AKA everyone's going to be willing. You can buy a round of pizzas and beer and that's payment yeah. for students and get as many people together and just do repertoire readings and set up your, your video camera and you're going to film it and you're going to send me the footage and we're going to address what you're doing. And he did this for several years. And now he just, he just assisted on uh, an opera production in France and like he's, he's doing it and he doesn't have a conducting degree. He, he gained all of this from just, 
putting together like weekly reading sessions with other students. Huh. And so it doesn't have to be, you're going to form a professional arts organization. Um, had I known how difficult it was going to be, I probably would not have done what I did, but I just kind of went in blindly with the goal of, I need more conducting experience. I don't want to go to school for it. So I need to get, I need to get hands-on with this. So I guess I'll create it. And, yeah. and that was just the start. That was the catalyst for everything. So uh, I, I, I think it's a great, great plan. You know, I think what you did is, is would appeal to me much more than the academic side. You know, you can talk and talk and talk and talk about conducting and look at pictures and whatever else. In the end, the best thing to do is go out and do it. And so setting up your own ensemble and just doing it and then having to learn all the other stuff to make it work, then fine, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you know, following up on that, Mike, the thing that was so important, I think, was getting to start in, in, in the hot seat, so to speak, like getting to conduct every piece on a program, having to make these all of these executive decisions. That's a rare thing. Usually you start, yeah, you're an assistant, you're observing, you're a cover conductor, you're not getting to do much. You work with a youth orchestra, which I love doing, by the yeah. way, but like I'm not talking, but like there's usually stages. And so to have to start by being the face of an organization, no matter how small it, you know, it, it may be, it's, I think it was really important for me. Yeah. And, and, and I think it could, it could provide a lot of value for a lot of other young conductors to, you know, also see like, is this something I would be interested in trying to pursue for the rest of my life? Because frankly, those are skills that, you know, as a music director or principal conductor, the, all of these other things that have nothing to do with conducting are going to be part of your life, a very yeah. large part of your life. And so learning it, you know, learning about this right away, I think is, is very important. <laughs> Now, what, I can see ways of collaborating with photographers and videographers or videographers or however you would say that word, and even poets. I can see this. Come on, how did you collaborate with a culinary artist? And what is a culinary artist? <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, a culinary artist is, is my turn of phrase for referring to someone who takes their passion of you know food and, and yeah. the culinary world very seriously. I've, I've, yeah. I've heard chefs refer to themselves as this. And I thought, you know what, I, th I that's fair. You know, if, yeah. it's, if it's someone and they've committed their life to it, that is an art form. Hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, so with, with Elevate to give a little extra context, I founded this group with a goal in mind, which was I need conducting experience. I want to be able to hire my friends and provide more work for the local scene. And I want to connect with audiences my age. And I started, you know, I founded Elevate at the age of 24. And living in San Francisco, the majority of the population were millennials from the tech and finance worlds, right? Silicon yeah, yeah, Valley. Yeah. And so I, I want to connect with these people. And so I made that my goal. And I put together an advisory board and I had people who were in the tech world, but had grown up playing in a youth orchestra. You know, they, they went yeah. in the arts and, you know, science and tech, they went tech for their careers, but their passion they still had for the, So I brought all these people in knowing that they could invite their friends to my concerts and, and maybe I can connect. And this became my reality. My core demographic were 35 years of age or younger and yeah. not in classical concert goers. So I had this sort of like what I think a lot of our industry is desperate to try and connect with. That was my core demographic, brilliant. Um, which, which was brilliant and, you know, provided its own challenges as well. Explaining to a 25 year old that who just paid 
$50 to come to a house concert you did that included uh, a tapas menu paired with the chamber works to then go, oh, um, can you donate to our organization? They go, wait, I just gave you $50. What do you mean? Like explaining to young, to millennials what philanthropy is, yes. you know? Yeah. And so that became the big challenge for me was I don't have, while I have all the young people, I don't have older people who have retired who understand the value of philanthropy. And so for me, it was fundraising became a different thing. I could sell out shows, but then those young people wouldn't necessarily be donors. Yeah. And um, but so to so circle back around, I, I started a, a concert series, part of our, our season each year doing house concerts in beautiful homes, old Victorian homes throughout the city. And I would have, you know, two to three sets of chamber music and going along and in between and paired with, I worked with an, an extraordinary chef, uh, Eric Chow is his name, who worked with a, a really famous um, restaurant and pastry shop there called Tartine, Tartine Bakery. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically he was wanted to find an outlet to stretch his culinary creative muscles. And yeah. so the performances became that for him. And so he got to experiment. And so I'd send him the program. He'd listen. I'm not saying it's one of these where it's like, it can be kind of BS, let's be honest, if someone goes, oh, we're pairing this wine and this to this piece. But he yeah. thought about it. He was at least listening to the music when he was putting together a program. So we weren't selling it as, oh, this, you know, this this tapas menu is is brilliantly executed with, the, you know, and paired with this piece. But he had that music in mind. And so yeah. our events became not just concerts. And that was kind of what I was excited about was the chance to explore how can I get an audience excited about a quote classical concert uh, without it being quote a classical concert? So yes. I had people that would show up because they knew the chef or they knew they loved the restaurant that he worked with or on a program that I worked with a, a local photographer. I had people from the local historical societies who loved this photographer's work show up and they had no idea who I was, who Elevate Ensemble was, who Stravinsky was. Like they didn't know anything else. They were showing up for this other oh. artistic, you know, endeavor that we were we were working with and so my, our audiences became quite unique and then if they enjoyed the experience they were very much open to coming back for something else because they were already not coming for the music so i didn't have to worry about like oh you can't you have to do all mozart because our yeah. audience is going to enjoy contemporary music like they were open to everything in some ways it didn't matter what i programmed it just mattered how i sold their night out on the town and yeah. i think that's an important thing that i think all of us in the industry can use is we're not selling a concert. We're selling a night out on the town. And these days we have so much to compete with. Yeah. Um, the one, one observation, and then I'll stop talking on this, but, but you can, I'm very excited about this. I think for me, one of the most unfortunate shifts in how people, how young people, I would say in particular, choose to plan their weekends or their off time came when in the middle of all this, when I was running Elevate, when Facebook changed, when you created an event and you could, you know, invite people and they could say going, not going, uh, maybe, interested. Yeah, yeah. yes, they switched it to interested in. Yes. And so people could be non-committal and then last minute go, oh, it's an hour until that show, but what else is going on? Oh, my friend's having a party. Oh, there's this other rock show. Oh, there's this restaurant that just opened. And so people stopped committing. There were, you know, mm. and so from the start for me, I wasn't subscriptions. That was a failure. One-off concerts um, was the the way to go for me and how we, how we sold tickets because young people weren't interested in committing to 
five or six programs throughout a year. It was a lot more spur of the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can say categorically that you piqued my interest because as you were talking about, you know, people coming to concerts and they were going because of the person that, you know, you'd booked, whether it be the chef or whether it be a photographer or whatever else, my creative juices started flowing. I'm thinking, well, who could we invite in Birmingham and who could we get in? What sort of evenings could we do? And this is incredible. Uh, and so I can see why people of that age thought it was amazing and why they followed followed you and you had a following. Um, I, my question was slightly flippant asking about culinary artists because I sort of knew what you were doing, but it's it's a wonderful and very interesting way of thinking about concert giving. And I've argued for years, you know, when people talk about why aren't people coming to concerts compared to the 1980s, you know, your 50 quid in your back pocket on a Friday night could be spent in so many more ways now than it could be in 1986. You know, uh, there are so many different ways. You know, every city in the world has got more food places, more bistros, more bars. They've, you've got Netflix. You've got, you know, you don't even have to leave your house and you can have all sorts of things entertain you. You've got to try and prize that 50 quid out of their back pocket in your direction or 50 bucks. And and I, I think people have to work harder at doing that and finding ways of doing it. And it sounds like you really did. Um, I'm assuming Elevator stopped now you've moved the other side of the country and and if so are you thinking of doing Elevator 2? <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know I, I did I did have to bring things to a close when I moved across the country um, but at the moment I don't have plans to start something new but what I found is that the skill sets I acquired and particularly as I'm now in a different stage and I'm interviewing for other higher role conducting positions, music director of some smaller regional orchestras, that this yeah. becomes the thing that they fixate on in interviews. Yeah. Because yeah. once again, I'm, I, it was so far left field. And that's the luxury of starting your own group is you don't have an institution that has a history that has decades or a century or more of, of history. As, as we know, it can be, there's, our industry can be very slow to change and yeah. I could turn on a dime and try something and it flops and I go, cool, I guess we're not doing that. Or let's tweak that again. And we're going to try it again. And yeah. everyone's on board. So at the moment, I don't plan on starting something new, but I know how to do it. The, the blueprints are there and there's a beauty to that, or I can take certain aspects and apply it to a more traditional institution. And that's sort of my hope moving forward as a conductor that I can add value to, to other orchestras by yeah. bringing in what I learned and experimented with, on my own on the small scale and expand it into, into a larger institution. New scores, we all have to learn them. And you're at a stage, you know, I'm gonna call you a young conductor. I don't know how old you actually are, but in conducting years, you know, fairly young, you've got a lot of repertoire to learn. How do you go about it? Uh, do you sit at your desk in an ear, big to small, small to big, first page to last or whatever? And of course, the important question, scribble it in or not scribble it in, a red, blue and black highlighters or completely virginally white? What's your process? Yeah, uh, I definitely am in a stage where I'm learning a tremendous amount of music. You know, I mean, once again, covering being a cover conductor for an entire season with one group alone is just yeah. it's overwhelming. It's it's frankly, it's 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 too much. We all know what that entails, which is you have to learn how to prioritize as well. What am I going to learn? Yes. How to what level of depth will I jump into some of this repertoire? Um, 
But for me, I will always do a couple. I, I love using recordings. Anyone who says very old fashioned, like you don't use a recording to me is missing out on the most important opportunity they have to learn. Mm -hmm. So I listen to a tremendous amount of recordings and I like to give several listens, like maybe two or three listens to different performances, different conductors, orchestras, time periods, and just follow along with a score first. That's step one. If I have the luxury, if it's contemporary music, I'm obviously a lot more limited or yeah. if it's a, a premiere. I have a MIDI file. Maybe mm, <laughs> if I'm yeah. lucky, I can listen to beautiful MIDI sounds, but um, I'll listen a few times, not mark anything. And then I'm a, I am a big marker upper of scores. Yeah. And so I use red for cues, blue for dynamics, and then I do green for phrase structure. Okay. And so, and then I use black for any other indications I feel like putting in there, but I, I definitely am a scribbler and I go through and do those basics, get the skeletal structure, get the cues, get some, some dynamic things. And I just spend a tremendous amount of time. I like to sing through a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I don't pull out the trumpet as much, but I, I actually sing sing through individual parts, which I really enjoy. And it's singing's become such a crucial way of internalizing scores for me now. Um, I can sit at a piano and you know I'll plunk out some chords and things, but um, piano I picked up at a later age, so I, yeah. I'm not the the old school like sit down and reduce a score sight reading. That's not me, and and I'm not gonna I've. At this stage, I'd if I wanted to dedicate the time to building my piano chops, I feel like I could be better using it, internalizing scores in ways that absolutely. are already more natural. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's it definitely gets messy, and then it's just layers. And 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 the way I, I describe it to friends or or maybe even to people who aren't aren't as familiar with the enigma that is being a conductor, how do you learn a score? I know that I'm getting to a good place when things just sort of pop off the page, and I may have been spending weeks with a score, and then all of a sudden I go. Oh my God, that has to be so much more timid on that, that, you know, that, that second repetition of that, or, the, and it's just like so glaringly obvious things pop out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I just allow these things to keep happening. And, and I also spend a lot of time then I do step away from recordings. I think that's really important as well, but I will always refer back to recordings, you know, too. it's, it's opened up possibilities for me that I would have never thought of. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in any other field, in any other, you know, discipline, going back to cookery, you know, I'm sure today's modern chefs go back and see how the last generation of chefs cooked something. Or going back to Escoffier, you know, photographers will go and look and see how Ansel Adams took photographs and architects look at Frank Lloyd Wright. Why shouldn't we listen to recordings of Toscanini and Stokowski and Furtwängler and whoever, it would be stupid not to do that. It's, it's arrogant. Um, Amen. So, yeah. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. We agree. Excellent. <laughs> if you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there is another way you can learn about conductors and conducting by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conductors and conducting. You can read my diaries when I guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of this podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and also see videos of the great conductors of the past. You can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most places, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on the world of conductors and conducting.
Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Chad Goodman. Chad, as somebody who's listened to a few episodes, um, you will know what's coming. It's the 10 questions, and you will also know that I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? So one of my favorite sounds is the sound of a busy restaurant. I love the sound of silverware and utensils, glasses clinking, people laughing and talking. I just, I, I think that's, it's a beautiful background noise. It, it really puts me at ease. Yeah. And it, it seems to make dinner go down better when everybody seems to be having a good time. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. And a least favorite sound for me, uh, motorcycles, motorbikes. I, I, I get enraged when someone has this muffler that is just so blaringly loud. You know, I, obviously we're all very sensitive as musicians, I'm sure sirens or something that comes up frequently or something like that. But I, 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 my blood boils a bit when there's, there's a motorcycle that's unnecessarily loud. Like I, I, I enjoy cars. I enjoy, you know, but I think when it's obvious that they've done some modifications to make it even more <laughs> obnoxious, that, that, that gets on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> I was blissfully unaware that people did this until a friend of mine, uh, briefly had an Aston Martin DB9, which is a very, very, very nice sports car. And I happened to go with him to an Aston Martin day out. Of, there, were, there were something like 450 Aston Martins in a field uh, in, in the middle of England. And during that day, he paid for somebody to install a switch and, uh, onto his dashboard that could turn off the silencer in his uh, in his exhaust so that the engine noise was even louder below a certain uh, rev counter. I thought, so you can pay money to make a really loud noise. Uh, so people must be doing this with everything. And um, yeah, uh, the, the amount of noise, I mean, I've said it before the podcast, we live on a dead straight road. And they seem to be hitting maximum revs as they pass our house. Uh, yeah. Oh, annoying noise. Next one. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Uh, going on a nice walk. I really, I really enjoy that. Um, some people are avid runners. I've never enjoyed running personally. <laughs> it feels like way too much work, but I can, I can walk for hours and hours. Yeah. I love doing that. Um, and then enjoying a nice outdoor barbecue with friends, you know, just enjoying food and company and being outdoors, whether it's by a beach like here in, in, in Miami or perhaps in the woods somewhere beautiful in forests, but just spending time with, in nature with good food and good people. I'm nodding because of the good food. And I chuckled a bit when you said you didn't like running. I've always found I loved running. I love running when I'm running into bowl or cricket ball or when I used to play five-a-side football, you know, to run through to try and score a goal or whatever. But yeah, just running for recreation? No, definitely not me. No, no. I happily walk for hours, but running, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Ooh, um, so favorite conductors. Unfortunately, it's more recent of yesteryear, but uh, I absolutely love Maris Janssen's recordings. I've learned so much from Maris Janssen's performances. I unfortunately never had the opportunity to see Maris performing live, hmm. um, but he's someone I've really admired. Um, I'll always throw in, I'll throw in what everyone does. Carlos Kleiber would be extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. um, but then I don't, the, the several episodes I've listened to, I, I haven't heard anyone mention yet, but Gustav Mahler. No, no would, I'm not sure anybody's mentioned him. As in someone who I'd love to talk with, you know, when it's that I admire and, you know, maybe it's not something where it's like admiring recordings and things like that, but a conductor of yesteryear, I think 
what an extraordinary person that would be to speak with about music. And as, as you and I, and all, all of us who, who love music know, he was far more successful, you know, for the majority of his career as, as, as a conductor, he was such an important figure. I think it would be incredible to spend time uh, learning from him. <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. I don't think anybody's mentioned his name as a, as a conductor of yesteryear. I know that there was an episode earlier on where we discussed his 10th symphony in the second movement, the, you know, the re, re, reconstruction by Derek Cook. And I've put a Patreon mini episode up about that movement. And it's all basically to do with the theory that, you know, he was the greatest conductor on the planet and wanted to show how good he was because there's so many meter changes in that movement. Um, but no, I don't think anybody, anybody's given that answer. So thank you. Brilliant. I wonder whether question five is difficult for you or not difficult for you. Some people complain about it. Favorite current conductor or conductors? Yeah, you know, I, I, I maybe it's because I'm in the, the, the younger conductor uh, category category yeah. right now, but that, that I, I could see maybe if, if that being challenging for, for some of the bigger names. Um, but for me, I'm very happy to share. I can, yeah. I, I can think of several um, who I really admire. Um, my mentor here, Michael Tilson Thomas, I think is one of the most brilliant musical minds, just minds in general I've, I've ever met. Um, I, I've learned so much from him and I, I just, what he's done musically, what he's done for community building. Um, as a, a side note, I just assisted him for two weeks. He was conducting in San Francisco and he's been, you know, the last few months he had had brain surgery over the summer. And mm. these were like his first performances back you know, after only several months and going through treatments and all of that and watching this man walk out for two weeks of, of programs, the audience in San Francisco, where he was, you know, director for so long, um, these, he got instant standing ovations the second he walked out, but it was just hearing the love that this community had for him. You know, I was sitting in different um, places throughout the hall every night. Yeah. And just, this isn't just like, upper class, the donors, the board members, the fill in the blanks. It's just people of all walks of life who are standing up, whistling, shouting, we love you, my MTT. We're so glad you're healthy. Like he changed that, that community. The yeah. San Francisco music scene is forever changed because of him. So that's something I aspire to do in the future. If I have the luxury of, of being a music director, it's really being a, a member of the community. And so, mm. so for, for that, I, admire him so much. Um, other conductors, Susanna Malki, um, I think is extraordinary. I, I got to share a program and, and conduct on a program with, with her several months ago here in Miami. And it was just life-changing and just spending time talking with her about music. Uh, Manfred Honick mm. as well, I think is absolutely brilliant. Just the level of dedication to his music. I remember assisting him in San Francisco and he was doing Dvorak 8, which I don't know how many thousands of times he has performed that. His score that he used, literally the binding had disintegrated. So it would be, I'd be sitting in his dressing room, we'll be talking, you know, balance notes or this or that. And he would just be turning pages and the pages are just not connected at all. <laughs> <laughs> and just to see someone who, who cared that much about standard repertoire that he's been doing for, for, for so long uh, yeah. was was incredible so i guess th those are a few a few of the names that come to mind well i, I agree with i agree with honick you know i mean i played for him um and yeah he's the passion he brings to pieces that other conductors or especially orchestras vorjak eight tchaikovsky's fifth symphony i remember playing for him 
and you know, you're going to stand in front of an orchestra who everybody's played it countless times and they're sitting there going well go on there make this one interesting and he always does and he always did and he brings his passion and level of detail and and to it all um yeah brilliant brilliant choice what is the hardest work you've ever conducted uh it was a work by charles ives called three pieces for theater or chamber orchestra Ooh, I don't know this. Catchy, t- catchy title, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trips off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and it is one of those works that, of, of course, it's got the, the wonderful polytonality that we associate with Ives, but the different sections of the, of the orchestra or ensemble are all in different meters and meters that don't make sense. So when you're even just trying to like call, like, let's go back to rehearsal a, that might be two and a half beats into the timpani part, which is a downbeat for the violins. It's one of these where the structure is so um, disjointed that like, even just something as simple as running, it's not simple (laughs) running a rehearsal is the hardest thing about any performance, Uh, but running a rehearsal and even just finding places to go back to became a challenge. And so it was just one of those where you're always having to shut shut off part of your brain, not look at certain parts of the score because it might throw you off. And I mean, something we all we, we go through as conductors that we know is on, on a simple example, maybe you have a five eight meter and it's two plus three for the majority of the ensemble, but three plus two is the the grouping for a few others. You know that those few others are not going to get what they need. This piece was consistently, no one's getting what they need. <laughs> because there's just too much happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been in those positions where, you know, you say to the orchestra, look, I'm beating this two plus three and four. And I've, I've actually sat down and worked it out. And I, it's for 63% of you, this is helpful. So I'm sorry for the other 37%. You know, you have to make a decision somewhere along the line, you know, but if nobody's getting what they want, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not helpful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember playing in the fourth, uh, Ives' fourth symphony. I was on the back desk of the seconds, myself and a, a very dear colleague of mine, Byron, and he had a solo in one bit, but we were off stage in the first movement, back on for the second movement where he had his off stage, uh, his back desk solo. Uh, and then we weren't in the third, but and then we had to walk off again to play off stage in the fourth. And meanwhile, there's you know two pianos, there's two conductors, there's yeah, it's uh, crazy music. I mean, I've done very little lives. I think I've done one piece, um, the Yale Princeton football game, which was bonkers anyway. Uh, but that sounds that sounds interesting. Uh, I'd love to see that yeah. score. Yeah, it's it's wild. I, I'll I'll send it to you. Um, but it's. I love Ives actually. I'm, I'm really drawn to to his music, which it's fortunate for me that you know I get to be working with with MTT, who's such a yeah. you know champion of of the works of Ives. Um, so you know his third symphony, I adore. So so, so much is um, so so many of his pieces I really really care for. But this one was challenging to a point that it was one of those where it, for me personally the amount of work and stress didn't justify the means of the end result. <laughs> so I, if, if that one stays on the shelf for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Okay, this is where everyone gets to learn our mutual nerdy uh, passion, which for me would be not one, but I would need to be traveling with two wristwatches. Uh, I would need a dress watch and a sport watch. Yeah. 
uh, well, you've, you, uh, you know, as you well know, because we well, we met over a Zoom call and we we talked about, you know, conducting for about five minutes and then spent another hour talking about watches, collecting, buying, selling. Um, yeah, I mean, I often travel with two watches as well, but that's because I, I like to swap them around. I don't like to wear the same watch every day. Um, uh, I'm not a dress watch wearer, but I will travel with a GMT watch Um uh, are you as I, I suspect I know the answer to this? If you're going on one of your walks after a rehearsal, and, and uh, I will often go out of my way to go via a watch shop to look in the window, especially if I know that if they sell a specific brand or two. Oh, yes. Yeah. If, if I'm in another city for work, I will look up what are the watch dealers that are here, and I make that part of my, my day off or my time off. Yeah. yeah. And do you have a watch that you like to wear in rehearsal? Uh, well, not wear. Do you take them off? I take mine off and put it on the stand. So I, for the for rehearsals, I will always take them off. What I've done recently, the fa- the past, actually the last three weeks that I've been conducting here in Miami, um, I've been wearing a, an old, it's late 1960s or early 70s um, Omega, a little gold dress watch that my mom had had found it like an estate sale or a yard sale flea market, fill in the blank with whatever term you use for these types of sales. And it was in like a bag of costume jewelry that she bought for $5 and it had this watch and the watch had been serviced. I took it in and they're like, it's been serviced within the last few years. So I don't know what happened, but I had this beautiful watch that my mom gave to me, which is very important. And um, it's so thin. It's a it's a hand wound. So for, for those listening, if you if, if you want to turn things off to hear <laughs> to not hear about watch talk, but because it's manual wound versus an automatic, it gets to be it, it's a much thinner watch. And so yeah. you forget that you're even wearing it. So the last three weeks I've worn that while performing and it's it's been just fine. But I usually do not wear a watch. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, go back to actually conducting. I think it's quite important not to wear a watch. Uh, and to to put it on your music stand. Musicians often see conductors looking down at their score and at their music stand. What they don't particularly want to see is the conductor looking at their watch, especially if there's 15 minutes of rehearsal to go and you feel that he's probably, he or she has probably run out of things to rehearse and then they look at their watch and then they suddenly find something to fill up the time. That used to drive us insane. And so, <laughs> you know, but if the watch is on the, on the platform, on the, on the stand, you know, and I have, pretty clear watches i either wear a tudor pelagos or a, or my panerai and i can see the time instantly on a, on you know i'm nobody's seeing me look at the time they're seeing me look down at the score so i you know i can judge especially if you're in a tight rehearsal schedule i can judge how much time i've got left or how much time i haven't got left i think to put it on your on your wrist and conduct you actually actually have to turn your wrist look at it and everybody can see that you're looking at the time and i think that that's not necessarily a good piece of body language that's such a great point, Mike. I, there's just, as you know, our, in, in the field of conducting, there's so many ways to lose yeah. <laughs> respect of the orchestra, to lose the, the, the ensemble, yeah. and something as subtle as that. Yeah, you're definitely right. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. Never, and and I, I never do in a rehearsal, like I said, for performance where you're running through. I'm not looking at my no, watch, no, but no, I've, no, you, know, no. you forget it's on. If it's a thin enough dress watch, you don't even know you're wearing a watch. Yeah. So, um, yeah. One final watch thing i'll comment on is that when i played you know i like the look of the watches i own i love looking at them often i'll look at them twice when i'm looking at the time once because i look at it to see what the time is look at it and go oh that's gorgeous then 30 seconds later think oh i forgot to look and see what the actual time was and so i'd look at it again but when i was playing 
I would always turn the face of the watch away from me against the music stand. So I didn't know what the time was in the rehearsal, um, which used to drive my desk partner, dear Graham, if you listen, who's now retired, he used to drive him mad. Um, and he used to say that all time always went backwards in rehearsals. He hated rehearsing. So, you know, he would often say to me, a goodly while into the rehearsal on a Monday morning, he said, what do you think the time is? And I'd say, oh, I think it's probably 25, 20 past 11. We're approaching the break. And he said, oh, no, it's five past 11. He always felt that it was always the worst case scenario. And so I bought him a gift once, which I, I, I know he treasured because I knew he wore it on a regular basis. I bought him one of these watches where all of the numbers were in reverse and the hands went backwards. So and he actually learned <laughs> he actually learned to tell the time off this thing. He could tell the time off this watch, which basically went backwards and was built backwards. Um, because you know, to him rehearsing, the time was standing still and going backwards. Uh, <laughs> That's such so, a brilliant gift. That's such a brilliant gift. I'm sure he loved that. Wow. <laughs> What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I, I would love for there to be more of a community aspect with the orchestra. Mm. There's always a, that invisible line or wall that separates the conductor from, from the ensemble, and which maybe in some ways is necessary. After all, you are being their leader and their director. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's a, it was a fascinating thing to go from playing trumpet professionally to, to conducting professionally, where when you're the musician, the camaraderie is naturally with all of the other musicians at your breaks, the intervals, you're always chatting with the other musicians. But at least from all of my experience as a conductor, as a conductor, you're, you spend your breaks with the administrative staff. You're chatting with the artistic department or, you know, a VP or an executive director. And, and there's sort of even backstage, there's sometimes these invisible walls where the musicians don't even cross to another part of the hallway where it's mostly administrative or the conductor and the soloist. And so I think it would be nice to find a happier middle ground of really building friendships with, with the musicians. And this might be, or it's not might, this definitely would have to do with the personality of the conductor. Mm. You know, I mean, if, if it's someone, I'm, I'm a naturally very, very extroverted person and I enjoy getting to know people and, and, and making friends. So it might come easier. It might be more possible for me than for someone who's a bit more reserved and is there and exclusively is just, I'm here to direct the music and, and that's it. Mm. But I'd, I'd like to see more of that moving forward if possible. You're right to say that there's a line there and, and uh, you know, I, I, I like to be sociable and, you know, I like to go out for meals with people. I like to sit down and have a couple of pints with people. But I would never, ever presume, I would, you know, I would never go and ask a player, oh, should we go for a beer or whatever? I always wait for them to ask me. So, I mean, I was recently in Trondheim and, you know, we got off the coach having done one of the uh, concerts in one of the outlying towns of uh, Trondheim. And a couple of the players came up to me and said, we're going for a beer. Do you want to come? You know, and I was like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, wonderful. And I also went to dinner at one of the players' houses because I got to know them as a friend. But I never, ever presume. Because in the end, you know, you're the interloper in their life. You're there for one week. They've got their own lives to lead. They've got their own things to deal with. You know, I think it's different as a music director when you live in the place. You know, you can form greater friendships. Uh, and, you know, even call people friends and, you know, invite them over. But I think when you're guesting, it's really tough. Um, uh, and, and you should never expect anything, you know. Um, that orchestra in Chondheim, I have a great friend there who, you know, I first knew when I was 
15 or 16, we played in the same county youth orchestra together. But I would never, ever expect uh, for us to meet up because he's got his own life. You know, he lives there all the time. I just I just turn up, you know, one or two weeks a year and sort of, you know, maybe, you know, uh, um, we can meet. But if we don't, we don't. Because and, and you should never expect it as a guest conductor ever. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and, and it's a strange thing to, that I can immediately agree with that. But yeah. but it is true. The like you said, to not assume that this is something that I, I like what you said of, of way, you know, if the musician asks, that's great. Yeah, but because yeah. there's all these pr other pressures that come with that. Do mm -hmm. they feel like are they going to feel obligated? Like, I have to now he's the conductor this week. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't say no to this or mm -hmm. like you, 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 there's there's so many more layers just based on the natural hierarchy of the work. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, looking back, you know, when, when Andrew Litton would come and I was still playing in the orchestra, whilst also being assistant and associate, you know, I would ask him out for dinner and there was always a resounding, yeah, where are we going? You know, <laughs> so, yeah, if, you know, if he, if, he, if he lives by the same rules as me and he waits for the players to ask, no wonder he was, you know, so happy to go out for a meal. Because um, I am, whenever I'm asked, it's, it's lovely. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think... Though I, though I imagine I could be successful in some other fields, I think I could be very successful in sales of, of just about anything. Which I think, once again, we're, we're conductors. We have to we have yeah. to be able to talk and uh, and connect. I like I I don't think I could allow myself to be in something that was not the creative arts or tied in in some way. I think being a visual artist, being a painter, could be something I'd be intrigued. It's actually something I picked up. During the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, I, I, like so many of our colleagues, sort of backed away. I wasn't studying scores profusely. Well, and, <laughs> you know, I took a step back and I started exploring all these other creative outlets. I started writing poetry, which I did obsessively. I went through these phases. I realized two month phases, if I want to call it that. I wrote poetry like very consistently for two months. And then I, I painted for the first time, like seriously paint. You know, of course, when you're a child, yeah, you do uh. this, you know, in art classes. But and, and I did a whole series of works, actually, just sort of through the lens of being a musician. Mm. Um, and I, I enjoyed it so much. And, and I've, I've learned a lot recently through, uh, through my girlfriend who works in the visual art world as an art advisor and curator. I've learned so much about that, the, the visual art scene. And, and I'm really drawn to so much of it. I've always been excited. I've always loved going to museums and learning about artists. And of course, seeing the connections to musicians throughout history. But I, I think I would get great satisfaction out of being an artist or pursuing that. So once again, another career that has no sense of stability <laughs> for the majority. <laughs> uh, but, but, but if not that, in, in looking at things, you know, immediately my passion for watches has, is, is just tremendous these, over these last few years. So maybe watch design, if I could go into the, the design end of things, I think could be really gratifying for me personally. Question 10. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? So for me, I, it comes down to, I think, from episodes I've listened to of, of your <laughs> podcast, I, I think something that's that's maybe more common, which is comfort food, I think is is yeah. how I would classify the majority of meals that people say. People, I've heard, I think the most I've heard was like spaghetti and meatballs or something like yeah. that. And for me, it would, it would be pizza. It would uh -huh. be from a particular 
particular place, there's a, a pizzeria in a small beach town in the state of Delaware that I would go to for holidays every summer with my family, a place called Rehoboth Beach. And there's a place called Grotto's, Grotto's Pizza. And it's one of my favorite things in the world. And it's simple. It's, yeah, I mean, while I, yeah, a Michelin star restaurant sounds great too. If we're talking last meal, I think comfort is what it's all about. So for me, it would be a pizza, plain cheese pizza from Grotto and a Coca-Cola in a glass bottle. <laughs> this is a very specific thing here in the States. At least they refer to it a lot of, time, a lot of times as a, a Mexican Coke because right. they're imported where they're made with cane sugar and not with high fructose corn syrup like you get in cans and plastic bottles here, at least in the States. So as simple as it gets, pizza and a soda, that would that would be it. I'd be happy. <laughs> well, there's nothing, nothing on the planet quite like a properly cooked pizza. I had one only last week when I was in Trondheim at a place, very similar name, Pizza Grano, it was called, um, wood-fired Oh, it was all about the crust of simple toppings. I'm salivating talking about it. And actually, there is something about, you know, a Coke from a glass bottle, that old-fashioned feeling. Um, it, it's a, a wonderful choice, really wonderful choice. And it's been a wonderful hour, Chad. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope in the future that we will actually meet up and continue chatting. I guarantee you it probably will be about conducting for about 10 minutes and then it'll probably be about watches for the rest of the time. But it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure and I hope to see you very soon. Yeah, I can't wait. It, it will happen. Looking forward to that, Mike. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an English conductor whose guest conducted all over the world conducting in the concert hall, as well as opera and ballet. She was taught by the great Russian pedagogue Ilya Musin, and she is co-founder and artistic director of Women Conductors with the Royal Philharmonic Society, a groundbreaking programme to encourage women into conducting. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>